Before we open the word, let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are just so inspired by the stories that you have given to us in your word for us to learn. And Lord, I know you have so much that you still want to teach us. And I ask that you will give us a glimpse of that in the next little bit as we open your word again. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings. Victoria is probably more familiar with this book because I think we've been reading it for a little while now. But uh, I want to share with you a story because I love stories. However, this story is not really a happy story. It's more of one of those stories that you wish it wasn't written. uh, Because we kind of wish it didn't happen. But yet, it was written because it did happen. And it was written because we have things that we need to learn from it. In 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, we find... And I'll just give you a little bit of a brief history of what happened uh, before this. Uh, We know, um, and I think I mentioned last week in my sermon about King Solomon, right? Uh, King Solomon, the son of King David, uh, who was a very good king for a little while, right? We learned last week about his New Year's resolutions that didn't last very long. And uh, he had a son named Rehoboam. And that's who we find here in 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon made a lot of mistakes in his life, and he left God for a good share of his life. And unfortunately, it was probably while Rehoboam was growing up. But later in his years, Solomon turned back toward God. And as a result of his uh, repentance, he wrote the book of Proverbs specifically for Rehoboam and some of his other sons, and really for the whole nation of Israel, to warn them of what he had done wrong and to warn them not to follow in his footsteps. And so Rehoboam uh, becomes king uh, after Solomon dies. And Rehoboam has not made fully uh, use of his father's book of Proverbs. And uh, so when all of Israel comes to anoint him as king and proclaim him king in place of his father Solomon, they ask him first, um, just tell us, uh, are you going to be nicer than your dad? And of course, we know what his response was, absolutely not. And uh, so Israel said, okay, then you will not be our king and we are going to leave, right? And... That experience woke up Rehoboam because all of a sudden he's left with just Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, and not the other ten tribes of Israel. And so Rehoboam turned to the Lord and worked a great revival in Judah for a short time. But I don't want to spend our time on Rehoboam's story. I want to look at the other ten tribes of Israel. The man who was anointed king over the other ten tribes of Israel, we find him, uh, his name was Jeroboam. It's kind of 
I find it interesting that they sound like they could have been related, right? <laughs> Jeroboam and Rehoboam. But a brief history about Jeroboam now. Jeroboam actually worked in the court of Solomon. He was a very influential man. And when Solomon rebelled against God, uh, God allowed Jeroboam to rebel against Solomon as a way to punish Solomon. And uh, a feud issued out between Jeroboam and Solomon. And Jeroboam ended up fleeing for his life. Uh, and he fled to Egypt. And he was there until Solomon died. And now he came back. And he was with the leaders of Israel when they decided to renounce Rehoboam. And all of Israel said, you know what? You worked in the court of the king. You are an amazing, talented man. We choose you to be king over the ten tribes. So now we have two kings, right? We have the ten tribes of Israel with Jeroboam. And we have two tribes of Israel with Rehoboam. Jeroboam obviously has the advantage, right? He has most of Israel. Even if like one tribe went back to uh, Judah, he's still got like nine tribes, right? He's, he's got the bulk of Israel. And he was actually ordained by God to be king over Israel. And God wanted him to work a revival in Israel. He was in the perfect position to pick up where Solomon left off. Work a revival in uh, leadership, in taxes, in plans for the kingdom, and in religion. And a spiritual revival. He had all that ability at his fingertips. But something got in the way. And that something was jealousy. Because even though he had ten tribes and... Rehoboam only had two tribes. Rehoboam had one piece of infrastructure that he was jealous about. And guess what that was? The temple. He had the temple. And uh, he knew that when the Israelites would go down to the temple for the feast, if they turned their hearts to God, well, they should, right? <laughs> That's what you should hope as a king, that they turn their hearts to God. But his fear was if they turn their hearts to God, they would decide to go back with Rehoboam and never come back again. And pretty soon all of Judah would be bigger than the rest of the ten tribes. That was his fear. Now, God was the one that put him on the throne. God was the one that instigated, I mean, not instigated, but allowed the ten tribes to revolt. And gave them to Jeroboam. Shouldn't Jeroboam have every reason to trust God? Of course. But what happens when pride and jealousy gets in the way? We don't think about that anymore. So Jeroboam decided to do something new. He decided that he was going to work a religious reform. He was going to bring a new form of worship, some new light, some new worship styles into the Jewish religion, right? So what does he do first? In, um, uh, we're going to be at first Kings chapter 12. We're starting at verse 25. 
Actually, in verse 28 is what it says. He went for advice. And unfortunately, I think he went for advice to the wrong people. Because this advice that was given him in verse 28 was to make two golden calves. Now, what did we learn about last week in our golden calves? <laughs> the golden calves were a, a product of a failed New Year's resolution on the part of Israel, right? Um, at Mount Sinai, when they forgot that they had promised to serve God, they had built a calf and they said, this is your gods that brought you out of Egypt. And he builds two golden calves. And he says to the people, it is too far for you to go to Jerusalem. We're going to erect a worship center a little bit closer to you. We're going to make worship more convenient. You know, this this worshiping God in Jerusalem, that that's old fashioned now. We we have a new a new way of uh, worshiping and uh it's going to be much more convenient to our society. This does sound familiar, doesn't it? So we're going to build some new structures. We're going to make them look really nice. And uh, we are going to appeal to your imagination. You know, you realize that we are worshiping a God that we cannot see. And so if we build some kind of something that we can realize, uh, maybe we can make our worship a little more exciting if we appeal to the imagination, especially, I mean, think of the youth, right? So, to appeal to the imagination, he made these two gold calves. They were placed very conveniently, one at a very special spot, Bethel. Now, what did we learn last week about Bethel? That was the place where Jacob made his New Year's resolutions, right? Where he said, God, Jehovah will be my God, right? Uh, Bethel is house of God. And so he chose a very prominent spot in Israel, a very sacred place to Israel, to put this golden calf, this new worship center. And the other one in the tribe of Dan, uh, also very convenient. And uh as he was putting together this new worship style, he's like, you know what? We need some pastors, right? So he went to the Levites. They were the designated pastors of the flock. And he said, Levites, we need your help. We need, I've just built these two new churches and we need some pastors. Will you come and help us? And guess what the Levites said? No. Why did the Levites say no? Because... This wasn't according to God's plan, right? This was not according to scripture. They they tried to explain to him that, you know, scripture says that we should not worship idols, that we should not, uh, you know, make new high places to worship. God has commanded us to worship at Jerusalem. So they refused. So he said, that's okay. This is, this is a new form of worship. Anyone can minister. Who says that we have to have designated ministers to God? Anyone can do it. And so we find here in um, verse 31 that he selected people from the lowest of the people to be the pastors. Now, what happens when your religion, uh, the leaders of your religion come from the lowest? (laughs) 
your, your quality decreases, right? But it's okay. This is a new religion. This is convenient, exciting, and it's going to appeal to the senses. And we are going to have an amazing time worshiping God. Then, in verse 32, you realize that the there's really, it's okay, it doesn't really matter what day we worship God on. We're going to choose a new day to worship. And our new day to worship is going to be in the eighth month, on the 15th day of the month. Now, when was the Day of Atonement? The seventh month, right? We're gonna we're just gonna make it a little more convenient. We're gonna choose the eighth month. Uh, this is our new day to worship. And so the date was set. The worship centers were built. The priests were ready. The leaders were ready. And the king himself says, "You know what?" Like I said, anyone can be a minister. I am going to be a minister too. And so uh, all of Israel came on the prescribed day to experience this new worship of God, as they were told. And as they are worshiping, they are enjoying it. There is feasting. There is dancing. There is exciting music there is everything that you could ever want and the king himself is has a censer in his hand and is waving incense before god when all of a sudden the service was interrupted by a man from judah who came walking in and this man from judah interrupts the service and everybody goes silent and he says Oh, altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee he shall offer the priest of the high places that burn incense on you, and men's bones will be burnt on you. And he gave a sign, saying, this is the sign which God has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. This is in 1 Kings 13. And immediately, the altar was rent. By no seen hand, the, the, an earthquake came, shook the altar. The altar fell apart in front of everybody. Panic-stricken, Jeroboam, in an effort to collect himself and maintain his authority, lifts out his arm and says, Away with this man! And as he's saying it, his arm withers, and he can't pull it down. So here he is, with this arm outstretched that he can't do anything about, as he's trying to get rid of this man who has interrupted the worship service. And he realizes that God is greater than his new worship. But is Jeroboam sorry? No, we find no ray of uh, repentance at all or sorrow for his sin or anything. All we see is in verse 6. He says, 
please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that I may have my hand back. That's his only concern. Because you see, he's the king. He's He is the one who has, has started this whole new religion in the first place and he must save face at all costs. Please, just give me my hand back. And God in his mercy restored Jeroboam's hand at the uh, request of this prophet, this unnamed prophet that we don't know. And then, of course... What is the next tactic that Jeroboam uses? If you can't beat them, join them. And he says, please come to my house. Let me feed you and I will give you a reward. Trying to save face any way he can. But to this entreaty, the prophet said, if you were to give me half of your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water, because it was commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the same way that you came. And he left. If the story ended there, it would be a fascinating story. But the story does not end there. There is a part two to the story. Because you see, this man of God, he obeyed. He obeyed what God had told him to do up until that point. But on his way home, something happened. All of a sudden, he was chased down by a man who says, of course, we don't know his name, right? He says, prophet, prophet. Please, please stop. I, I must talk to you. You see, I am a Seventh-day Adventist just like you are, and God has given me new light. And the new light says that you don't have to do what God told you to do anymore. And you can come to my house and eat. Isn't that what he said? He said that. Okay, maybe he didn't say Seventh-day Adventist. He said, I'm a prophet like you are. But the same idea, right? And so he begged him and pleaded him and shared with him his new light that God had given him until finally the prophet said, okay. And he went home with the man. Now, of course, we know in the story in uh, verse 18 that he was lying to him, right? This whole thing was made up, but the prophet didn't know that. He assumed that he could trust this gentleman who was claiming to be his brother. And as he was eating at the man's house, God did make that man into a prophet to prophesy his punishment. And in verse 21, he cried out to the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said, eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Wow. 
and it came to pass. As that prophet left the man's house and went on his way home, of all things, a lion came out, killed the prophet, but left the donkey untouched. Now, what lion would not kill a donkey? And the donkey did not run away. Neither did the lion. And the lion did not eat the man. When passerbyers came and told this man who had lied to the prophet, they said, behold, the man of God is dead. His donkey is standing next to him. And the lion is sitting there standing guard. That was no happenstance. That was a direct retribution from God. And so, in uh, obedience to what uh, God had said, that prophet wasn't buried in his own tomb at home. That uh, gentleman came and buried him in the town where he had stopped and eaten against God's will. What a story. But what lessons we can learn from it today. Because you see, all these things that happened way back then are happening today. As I know you can see in many ways. But the question is, how can we discern what is truth? You see, there were a lot of people in Israel that day who were genuinely confused by Jeroboam, who actually were there at the altar. They thought they were worshiping God. And God in his mercy sent that man of God to them to interrupt the worship service, to warn them of where they were headed. And because of that man of God, and because of that interruption of the the worship service, those people who really thought they were doing what was right, woke up, they repented, and they moved out of the ten tribes of Israel. They moved to Jerusalem to worship God correctly. It was a wake-up call to them. Others, they weren't really sure about what happened. Uh, that whole interruption to the worship service, it kind of left them confused. Who was this man that just suddenly showed up and made this prophecy and then disappeared? But then word got to them of how he himself had disobeyed the word of the Lord and he himself had been punished. And they woke up and they said, it's important to obey the voice of the Lord. It's important to obey him everything that he says and not just part of it. And they repented and they moved to Jerusalem and became part of Judah and worshiped the Lord there. God, even though they seem like very uh, strange, very Uh, direct uh, chastisements and judgments, God was doing it in love to save his people, Israel. And he tells us today 
to discern what is truth. How do we know what is truth? How do we know when someone comes to us and says, I have new light from God? How do we know when someone says, I have a new way to worship, a new way to connect with God? It's exciting. Now, friends, worship to God is exciting. But it doesn't excite your senses in the same way. It doesn't excite your passions. Worship to God connects you to the almighty creator. Are we willing to be that prophet? To obey the voice of God and stand up for what is right? And are we willing to continue to obey unlike he disobeyed? And follow God through with what he says. Though this story may seem very harsh. It shows God's love in a mighty way. It shows his care for us. And it shows how much it's important to him. That we serve him. Are you willing to make a stand? Are you willing to stand up for God? And what he asks you to do. It may not be some great thing like this prophet where you have to go and interrupt the church service. I pray it's not. (laughs) But every day we are asked to make a stand for what is right. Are we willing even in the little things? That prophet who made that decision to disobey and listen to that man. Do you think that was the first time he had disobeyed God's voice? Probably not. Probably he had fostered a habit of excusing the little sins. How are we with God? Father, this is our prayer. We ask that you will give us the courage to stand up, even if we are the only one, to stand up for what is right, though the heavens fall. And Father, we can't do this on our own. We could try all we want, but we would fail too. But Lord, we just commit our lives to you today. We ask that you will take all of us, every part of us, that you will use us, and that you will give us the strength each day to make those choices for you. So when the final choice does come, we may be ready to make that stand. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.